Hi, I'm John Carpenter, and here begins Halloween. Compass International Pictures release. My third feature film as a director. Originally, I had uh, written an opening of the movie where the camera was dollying down a street. You could see the leaves blowing and the sidewalk, and we would come upon a mask lying in a gutter. But somehow it wasn't as stylistic as the slow track in on the glowing pumpkin, lit inside by Dean Cundey with the flickering light and candles. Credits running on the right. Halloween was universally across the board panned by every reviewer who saw it. They said it wasn't frightening. They said it was stupid. They said it was too low budget. They said it was a dumb idea. Deborah Hill sent me a, a fistful of clippings that I read and got extremely depressed. Then, strangely enough, there was a review in the Village Voice that compared Halloween to Psycho and my work to Hitchcock, and all of a sudden, all the reviewers re-reviewed it, as if someone had just told them you didn't see this movie correctly. Why don't you look at it again? And to my shock, as the grosses began to climb, all the reviewers who had said it was so bad now were saying this, this is great. Still to this day, I can't tell you, but I think that the audiences, as opposed to the critics, created Halloween. Hi, I'm Deborah Hill, and I'm co-writer of Halloween with John Carpenter and producer of the movie. I first met John Carpenter when he was looking for a script supervisor on Assault and Precinct 13. John and I hit it off right away. We did Assault and Precinct 13, and then a few years later, he came to me and said, "I can't get you out of my mind," and we entered into a love relationship. And we actually lived together, and out of that collaboration came Halloween. The opening sequence is a apparently a single Panaglide shot. Panaglide is a version of a gyroscopic camera known as the Steadicam. It's worn by an operator, and it gives a very special, unique visual look. This one long tracking shot was inspired by, of course, the tracking shot we all remember from *Touch of Evil*, the Orson Welles film. As I look at the movie, the primary influence on the style of the film was the work of Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock's moving camera would bring you. Without a cut from one environment to another, one room to another, one set to another, and I simply took my knowledge and appreciation for Hitchcock and took it one step further with the Panaglide, this camera that that glides on its own. It doesn't appear to be a dolly, so it's not quite as stable. It's not handheld, so you don't always see the steps of the operator. Because it's kind of a weird sense of floating. But if anything, Halloween's style was was、uh, driven by simplicity. The movie had to be simple in order to work. And as we're tracking around this direction, the crew is inside, flipping all the lights around in anticipation of us coming around back of the house and coming in the other way. There's an incredible noise going on inside. Up the steps. Now we're lit. There's a whole little caravan following this camera. And one of the members of the caravan is Deborah Hill, dressed in a clown outfit. And in a minute, you're going to see her hand. You are actually listening to Jamie Lee Curtis talk about Halloween. 
her first movie that she ever appeared in. The way this house really looked in real life was the way that the house looks for the rest of the movie, all decrepit and broken. And this was the last shot of the movie, and the entire crew and cast spent the day at this house whitewashing it, furnishing it, carpeting it, wallpapering it, and making it look like this house now. The way this house is, there are grips hiding in every corner of this room with lights, because the minute that the camera is passing, they're going to then move the light out of the room and put it in another place because we didn't have enough lights. Yeah. This guy, what a pig. That was the fastest sex I've ever seen in the history of the movies. <laughs> this is a very narrow house, and it had just been painted a few hours earlier, and the parts that we see were the only parts that were painted. Now you're going to see a human struggle with a camera and a very small staircase. We're trying to hold the light up on the left in frame because the foreground is going out of focus. Now up we come, jiggling and bouncing. Now the operator's almost made it. He saved his own life. He's at the top of the stairs. He sees a mask. As this mask is put on the camera, there's Deborah's hand again. We're going to make a cut. Now we're into another shot and another take. And this is really the only, this shot that we're going to see is really the only nudity in the movie. Um, she's, um, her, she's bare-breasted. There's the bed at which the dirty deed was done. We come back around to the sister. She's going to look right into camera. Now we're going to do her death in kind of the only way we could. Without really stabbing this girl, we go up and see our own hand stabbing. I don't quite know what that means, but it seemed to work in the film. What you just saw was the splashing shot was really probably the only violent shot in the entire movie. I mean, we really tried to do this with really good taste and stuff. Halloween's reputation as a violent horror film is only because what the audience thought it was going to happen, much more than what did happen. There is almost no on-screen overt violence in the film. But we're all waiting in suspense to see what happens. Hopefully. I've been a fan of Donald Pleasance for many years. When he came to town, I had a lunch meeting with him, and he said, the only reason I'm here is because my daughter liked one of your movies, Assault on Precinct 13, and I don't understand this script at all. Would you please explain it to me? At the time, I was rather young and terrified, but I soon found that Donald is a very warm and funny man, and we had a great time together. And a rainy, stormy night up in the Hollywood Hills with an optical flash of lightning, and we're inside. Point of view, this is around uh, Hollywood Dam. There's Donald Pleasance. Inside a garage with a lot of rain, you notice the soundtrack is a little dodgy in this area because we were in a tin studio with rain pouring on the car. You ever done anything like this before? Only minimum security. You know, we didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't have a lot of lights. I mean, imagine all the night scenes in this movie being lit by the equipment that's in a VW bus. The only thing 
that ever bothers me is their gibberish. So you can imagine how difficult it was. So John used the panic light, he used the rain to set up mood and style and scares. Just try to understand what we're dealing with here. Don't underestimate it. Don't you think we could refer to it as him? I mean, so you see, like, you know, in a film that I might make now, or even Escape from New York, which we made together, you'd be able to see outside those windows. And you don't see outside those windows. You just see inside the car. Donald Pleasance was really fun. He was sort of an older statesman. Here we were, these kids, you know, working with other kids, you know, teenagers, sort of out making this movie. And I think he was astonished at it, you know, and sort of slightly amused at it. I mean, you know, we, we had one truck called the movie van, and for the five days that he was with us, we had a, a Winnebago for him. I mean, here's a man who made big studio pictures where you need, you know, all these drivers and the big trucks. It's like a caravan. Never. Then why are we taking him up to Hardin County if you're just going to walk Because him? that is the law. Here we are. But also, too, one of the things that we loved about the idea of someone with an English accent playing this character is because he gave such true importance to these words that John had written. And we at first offered the role to Christopher Lee, and he passed on it. Years later, I ran into him at an AFCO embassy function, and he came up to me and he said, I'm really sorry I didn't say yes to that movie, because it created Donald Pleasance a whole new career. Shouldn't we go on up to the hospital and wait? That was actually Nick Castle leaping up on the top of the car. Nick has become a director of many big-budget movies. He played the shape in this film. I know we have a little struggle going here. All done uh, process, except for the shot through the window. Cut extremely well by Tommy Lee Wallace, who edited the movie. And now the window is smashed. You will be able to see, if you look carefully, a wrench in his hand. Nancy Stevens is an actor who both John and I really liked, and she went on to marry Rick Rosenthal, who was the director of Halloween 2. Now Nick Castle jumps in the car and drives away. It's extremely cold and wet night, and it wasn't a lot of fun to shoot this. And Donald wasn't in a good mood because he had to be out in the rain, and we'd much prefer to be in a restaurant having some wine. The evil is gone. The evil is gone. Give me a break. The evil is gone. I mean, what a perfect setup. Now, Haddonfield, Illinois is a fictitious place, but I'm from Haddonfield, New Jersey, and graduated from Haddonfield High School. We named the fictitious town after my old high school town. And years later, after Halloween was so successful, there was these rumors in my old town that this was really a true story and this house existed. The very first shot we took in this movie, began on a Wednesday, I believe, was this one here. It's a little square in South Pasadena. Jamie Lee's about to make her appearance. That's my old Cadillac I used to own there with a little thing stuck on the side saying real estate. Try to avoid palm trees and try to give the movie a sense of being in the Midwest and sometimes we succeeded and sometimes we failed. The day after I finished this first day of work, I literally thought I would be fired. 
I got home like any actor was neurotic and crazy and thought I'd be fired. I won't. John Carpenter that night, I was at home and I had a roommate and she picked up the phone and said, Jamie, it's for you, it's John Carpenter. And I literally thought I was going to get that phone call of, uh, Jamie, it just, I saw, that, you know, it, we're going to find somebody else. That's a normal actor's neuroses is that they're, you know, it's a weird job we do. We put ourselves out there in a strange way. When Jamie Lee Curtis came to interview with me, the legacy of her having a famous mother who was so famous in Psycho, I mean, it really worked from, I think, a spin kind of point of view. And I was sort of young and naive, but I knew that has spin. There's a story in there. There's a People magazine. There's Liz Smith. I mean, you know, whatever. Coming over tonight. Same time, same place. And so I really wanted her, and she was not John Carpenter's first choice. John wanted the daughter of the person on Lassie. You better hurry up. Now we're moving down the street to the Myers house, which is the old-fashioned haunted house that appears in most small towns where something terrible happened one day. The dialogue here is looped in later because of the squeaking of the dolly track in the street. The Myers house. The Myers house. There's the haunted house looking like we first found it. In the opening shot, we shot the last day of shooting, and this shot we shot on the first day of shooting because we needed the time to take this sort of haunted, empty, run-down house, paint it, wallpaper it, and make it work for the opening. You're about to hear one of my musical stings that permeate the movie. I would say rather crassly, but effectively. There it is. The introduction of someone inside. That's a haunted house. Laurie's going to be set up as a lonely kid. probably won't get out of the sixth grade. Sweet. Virginal, alone. The movie was heavily criticized for some aspects of this idea that the other girls in the movie, since they had boyfriends, were uh, somehow morally uh, deserving of dying from the hands of the shape. And Jamie Lee, because she was a virgin, was the, the heroine that I let live, uh, which is absolutely untrue. The whole point of it being that the girls who were involved with their boyfriends were too busy to notice what was going on. I'm not responsible, Sam. Oh, no. I when I heard that they were going to, that Donald Pleasance was in the film, I was not familiar with him. I was an 18-year-old idiot, and I had no real film knowledge. And he was the big score for the film for them. He was the, quote, name actor in the piece. And they brought him over from England and I think put him up at the Chateau Marmont. You know, he was lovely. I, I have very little work with him in the film. In fact, the only work I have with him is right at the end of the film when, when you know, all hell has broken loose. And I was going to say the shit hit the fan, but I thought maybe I shouldn't swear. And the book I've never gotten very used to looking at myself in the movies. I don't cringe, but I've never been very attached to what I look like and never really particularly cared about it all that much. No matter what course of action Collins took... I don't really look at any of my past work and look at my lost youth and, oh, I was beautiful and young, because I don't think I was very attractive. I, in fact, think I'm much more attractive now than I was when I was younger. I just think I've come into m myself a little more. And so I don't look at this and, and sort of, I look at, wonder how thin a face could be on film. 
I think it's, I think it's the thinnest face ever photographed on film. Answer the question. Oh, um. This is a South Pasadena high school. The idea that she's the one who only one who can see the shape comes from the idea that because of her repression, perhaps her her shyness, she has the instincts and the ability to watch. She's a watcher, just like the shape is. Fate never changes. John wanted to establish, as you watch this movie, we open very, very wide on these shots. And as you watch the film, John uses lens as we go on that are closer and closer and closer and closer to sort of build tension, to build suspense, but to also build a kind of feeling of claustrophobia. I believe this was the second scene we filmed the first day. It's always very difficult to, to work with kids. Yeah, we get candy. But they did a great job. Kind of a typical scene nowadays in the society we live in. They would probably all pull out guns and shoot each other. But I was trying to evoke a small town and time and place that's very far away from here. Nick Castle asked me how seriously to play the mental illness. And he has a certain stance and move that I, I think was never captured in the other films. The movies used actors or stuntmen that didn't quite have the grace of movement that I felt Nick did. Here, wide, the shape is watching. But as the film progresses and the shape gets closer and closer to Laurie Strode, it becomes more intimate and scarier. So that's why we used these really long, wide lenses and the panoglide, as you see. And if you notice, the picture is shot in anamorphic lenses, which means it's widescreen. That's a John Carpenter thing. I mean, he, all of his pictures are anamorphic. And he really believes that it's bigger than life. It engages the viewer who's sitting in, in the audience into the movie by having that widescreen persona. And we wanted to sort of build. It's a beautiful little community, a sleepy little community. Nick Castle uh, was a classmate of John's at USC who's gone on to direct Dennis the Menace and uh, his co-producer in Hook. This is a scene that we shot out in City of Industry. And we actually plopped this phone booth and this sign which said Haddonfield. But we have this train which goes by, which we captured, which was production value that we never thought we would get. Because I know him. I'm his doctor. You must be ready for him. If you don't, it's your funeral. I had another bit of dialogue written for Donald here where he's calling his wife was very concerned about him and Donald rejected the dialogue said he didn't want to have a family or a past and since I was so in awe of Donald at the time I agreed with him totally I was afraid to uh, afraid to contradict him my friend Barry Bernardi at the time was the um, craft service person and he had a red pickup truck and he would arrive with like coffee and donuts and bagels and he's gone on to be he became the location manager, associate producer on Escape from New York. Um, he was a producer on Starman. Um, he was in, very involved with John for a number of years, now has his own company. That's his red truck, and that's when it wasn't in the scene, it was the craft service truck. This is Barry Bernardi here, drenched in blood. One of the few times we see a little blood on some characters. 
Jamie Lee Curtis. It was so much like guerrilla movie making. It was done on such a low budget. We were all sort of working for the common good. Everybody was very young. I think John and Deborah were the oldest people on the set. They were 30. So they were all these young grips and young electricians and young actors, and we were all working toward this common thing. Totally. It's very rare that you have that opportunity in the movies. Um, I think so often we feel like we're working for some big brother and that we don't have a connection to the piece. And it was also, I was 19, I had basically no cares. And it was wonderful. It was just really a magical time. Lying around on grip blankets at lunch. The caterer wasn't a normal, horrible movie caterer. It was a friend of John and Deborah's. We were working so hard and such long hours that lunch, everybody would fall asleep on these grip blankets lying out on the lawns in West Hollywood in South Pasadena in the spring of 1978. Deborah Hill. Now this for me was the really fun writing, which is the girls together. They're talking like they're in the girls' bathroom. They're talking about boys. and They're talking about makeup. And they're talking about wardrobe. And they're having fun. You know, this is what a teenage girl's life is like. And so I was able to sort of relive my childhood. I was a babysitter, was raised in a small town called Haddonfield, relatively safe. And there's always this idea of evil lurking. I don't think so. I think it's cute. Jerk! Speed kill! What's ironic to me about Halloween is that when John hired me, he had a choice between three parts. And obviously you were casting a cheerleader, a sort of smart aleck, and this little repressed virgin. You know, Annie, someday you're going to get us all into deep trouble. I don't think you necessarily pick me as a sort of stereotypical, quiet, repressed one. I think you would choose me as maybe the smart aleck. Well, are we still on for tonight? Well, one of the pretty things about South Pasadena are the big old trees and the dappled sunlight and all of that kind of stuff. And I think when you have that, it gives depth to the picture rather than making the picture look so flat. And that's sort of what we were going for in terms of style. Once again, you know, sort of a, a technique when you don't have any money. Nowadays, you would take a street like this, and it would be, you shoot it in a very flat like that sort of lighting, and you would put like a big kookaloris with a giant 10K down, and you'd create your own dappled sunlight. But we couldn't do that kind of stuff. John Carpenter. Music seemed to be very effective for the film. It was very minimal, repetitious. Reminded me slightly of, of Dario Argento's score in Suspiria, to which this movie owes a lot. Reminds me also of the tubular bells in The Exorcist. I don't know yet. I have to get out of taking my little brother treat for Bob. Funny. John Carpenter had the music in his head before he even directed the picture. As we were writing the screenplay, he would call me down to the piano and he would sit and he'd play this haunting tune. The idea of the evil character, which is Michael Myers, came from the idea of a man in a mask. 
and behind that mask some horrific event was so frozen in the man's psyche that he had to recreate that for himself. And so the idea of that he was pure evil and that he only got even more evil as time went on. Laurie, dear. Some cigarette smoke floating through the shot. That was from the director, who was smoking too near the camera. Some of the pictures that were inspirational about the time that we did this picture were things like Dripping Deep Red by Dario Argento where we got the feeling of opening it with the sort of innocence of the children's song because that movie plays, you know, there's a children's song that plays constantly all the way through the movie. Now you're seeing men behind bushes. And that children's song is what clues who the killer is. See you later. Bye. Bye. Now we're into a gag with Charles Cyphers. I've used Chuck several times, beginning in Assault on Precinct 13. He's a terrific actor. Familiar in the 70s is still working. Jamie looks back, turns and runs into Cyphers. Excuse me, Lori. Oh, Mr. Brackett, I'm sorry, Mr. Brackett. Oh, I didn't mean to startle you. That's all right. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled one good scare, huh? Yes, sir. Nice seeing you, sir. Lee Brackett is one of my favorite writers. Uh, she worked with Howard Hawks for many years, wrote The Big Sleep, El Dorado, she died a few years ago. You may notice the rain on the streets in this particular scene. This is another day, and it just rained very hard. But it's supposed to connect up with the scene you just saw. Of course, this is the way it goes in movies. When we, we outfitted Laurie, it was so important to me that we go to J.C. Penney and really get these separates and put them all together in these outfits. It gave such a feeling. It was so easy to fall into character because the clothes helped so much. Well, kiddo, I thought you outgrew superstition. The superstition line that Jamie just delivered was one that was written by Deborah Hill that I've never quite understood, but it sure does work. Again, Jamie sees, looks, sees the shape, back to her, he's gone. It's an Alfred Hitchcock technique. We've been forced now to identify with her, and through her eyes we're telling the story in terms of what's happening. Another kind of cheese ball trick coming up, the phone rings. This was one scene in the film that we had to reshoot. We originally shot this in South Pasadena, but the sequence didn't play or look as well as we wanted, so Deborah had to deliver me some bad news. Hello? John, we have to reshoot it. I dislike reshooting scenes. John reshot the scene, and I think it worked better. I think it has to do with the camera movement to the telephone to give us that scare of the phone ringing. The idea is that they're playing tricks on each other. It's a holiday that allows you to be kind of trickful. But what's happening is that there really is something. There really is evil. So Lori Strode begins to confuse 
is this just my friends playing tricks on me, or is this really happening? And I think that's why the audience has responded so well, because she really loses control. I mean, she doesn't have control of the situation. This is when it really looks like fall. See how many brown leaves are flying? They really just manage with the film stock and the color and the way it, you know? And some brown leaves being thrown in front. And look how cold and blustery the day looks. And it's actually March in Pasadena. Ugly pants. Kind of looks like Diane Arbusville, a little bit to me. Small town with kids in odd Halloween outfits. Now look at the trees. They're big and green and full. It's full. It's supposed to be October 30th in Illinois. Everything would be dead. I love the walk. I love the way I have to kind of waddle. She does the waddle carrying this thing. It was a pumpkin. I mean, it was heavy. Second day shooting was the interior of the car sequence. Merciless sequences for a director. There's not too much you can do. You have to mount the camera on the hood. It's the Coupe de Ville singing at that particular point. The Coupe de Ville is a rock and roll group featuring myself, Tommy Lee Wallace, and Nick Castle. Halloween came about from a conversation I had with Mustafa Akkad when I was in England. He said, let's make a movie together. And I came back to the United States, and Erwin Yabalans brought me in and said, I want to make a $300,000 movie called The Babysitter Murders. And uh, can you make it for that little money? And I said, yes, I can if you give me creative control. Later, Erwin called me and told me, why don't we make the movie set on Halloween night, and perhaps why don't we call it Halloween? There's never been a Halloween movie before. This guy was going to give us $300,000 to write, direct, and produce a movie and total autonomy. I mean, it was absolutely wonderful. So we came back and trying to throw out some ideas of plots and things like that when Erwin Yablons, who is credited with executive producer credit, called and he had this really brilliant idea, which is what if we set it on Halloween night? Yeah, Myers, Judith Myers, I remember The her. night before Halloween is when all the kids go out and they TP houses and, you know, they, in these days they did lots of pranks. This is the graveyard where the sister is buried. What's so interesting is that Donald knows that something's about to happen because this is a sign that he's been here to everybody else. It's a prank that the teenagers, you know, have done. So it's the idea of confusing the mythology of Halloween, you know, that we all know and love, and the reality of something that's happening in the small town. Still spooked? I wasn't spooked. Lie. I wasn't. Now we hear Don't Fear the Reaper, one of my favorite songs by Blue Oyster Cult. Mr. Riddle was watching you, Lori. Mr. Riddle is 87. He can still watch. Probably all he can do. Well, one of the things that we tried to do with these teenage girls is to make them reflect the time, the reality of the day. One of the things is, you know, besides giving them dialogue about, you know, boys and trends and stuff like that, is teenagers do what teenagers do. They experiment, and they push the envelope, and they see how far they can rebel. 
And so that's what these teenagers are doing. They're experimenting with drugs. They're experimenting with sex. They don't know the boundaries, and they're pushing the boundaries. I think it reflected the time uh, of the day when we made this movie, which is 1978. It was very real. And I think that's one of the reasons why the audience has responded, because here's a movie that they could go and they could see themselves. What's the matter with you? It's a little square in South Pasadena. In actuality, at this time, it was rush hour traffic. Either side of the frame that you don't see is Los Angeles on their way home from work, very angry that we're taking up their time and space. What happened? Oh, uh, somebody broke into the hardware store, probably kids. You blame everything on kids. Well, no, all they took was some Halloween masks, a uh, rope, and a couple of knives. Well, who do you think it was? Hard growing up with a cynical father. The Halloween theme, it was just a perfect theme. It's what teenagers do best, is have fun on Halloween. They dress up, they bob for apples, they do all this crazy stuff, and they do pranks. And so what it ended up doing was enabled us to sort of eliminate the adult, except for the cop and the doctor, and really plant ourselves in a teenage world of what would happen on a single night if you had all these kids interacting. Dr. Sam Loomis. Uh, Lee Bracken. I'd like to have a word with you if I could. Well, maybe a few minutes. It's, I've got to take this. It's important. Horror movies are usually uh, uh, extremely dark. The movie begins in daylight and ends in darkness. We're going to slide you into it very carefully. This is a sequence that was directed by Deborah Hill. What's the matter with you? While we were shooting the opening sequence, we realized we were going to be uh, short on our running time, so Deborah ran out with a camera, and uh, the girls improvised this scene. Very pretty uh, sunset uh, coming through the lens scene. And Deborah did a great job of directing. I'm sitting in the back seat with a camera. It's the day that we shot the opening scene of the movie, which was the last day of filming, and we hadn't yet gotten this conversation. And so John said, take the camera and go out and shoot this. So I'm in the back seat with the cameraman. I'm with Ray Stella, and um, we shot it. This is like a transitional shot to go from day to night, at which we need it. Ben Tramer. I knew it! <laughs> So you do think about things like that, huh, Lori? <laughs> Shut up. There was never a conscious effort to say that the, out of the three girls, the one who was the virgin is the one who is not killed or spared. I think that was something that was never conscious effort on our part to do that. I think that what happened is that critics later on watching the movie tried to apply some sort of morality that we were as filmmakers trying to imply and that was never true the idea was that Lori was naive not that she was sexless that she hadn't yet found herself or the other two girls were bolder and had found themselves and so therefore they pushed the envelope a little bit further than what Lori did Lori was safe she likes everything safe she doesn't want to ask the boy out. She doesn't want to go to the dance. She's going to babysit. She's going to do the right thing. She doesn't want to get a first kiss. I mean, all this, she was looking for safe. And the irony is that it wasn't safe.
we grew up in the 50s, and it was sort of very, very safe. It was a very different world than it is now. Um, fear was of communism, which was sort of, you know, you didn't see it or hear it or, you know, it wasn't like the guy down the street. Um, we grew up with a fear of the nuclear bomb, which you also couldn't see. We also grew up with fear of invasion from outer space of some, you know, of something. And I think that when you built on that, they were like safe fears. I think nowadays, filmmakers have to be really reflective of what's happening, you know, on the streets. And I think they have to understand violence and the nature of violence because I think it's gone a little too far. But back then, it was fun. I love this shot because it's very reminiscent of um, uh, Chinatown. We actually stole a shot right out of Chinatown. And I love the house because the house looks like a person. It looks like it's got eyes and a mouth. And I love the way that was lit. This is actually a really scary scene. Hadfield thinks this place is haunted. Then maybe like. There was a haunted house in my small town of Bowling Green. It was out beyond the bypass, out on a, on a lonely road. and. The legends over the years about what happened in the house began to grow and grow with each telling. I think each town has some some house of tragedy, some place that no one goes near. It's almost like a Old Testament reaction to what happens when something tragic takes place. Still warm. He got hungry. One of the questions that I have been asked ever since 1978 over and over again by every person almost every interview that I've ever had is what scares you there seems to be a fascination with with in a personal way what's what scares John Carpenter and I, my answer I began by, by I think by saying nothing and then by saying loss of control or making up something but I think what scares me scares every human on the planet we're all aware of the forces of darkness, of, of evil, of loss, death. We know it as little children. I mean, I think all of this is dealt with in Grimm's fairy tales. I think it's dealt with in horror movies. Horror is a universal language. This was the part of the movie Donald didn't understand, but did a brilliant job with. Standing on the lawn. He could have seen his sight. Cheap trick. Now we introduce Donald's gun. He truly is frightened of evil. You must think me a very sinister doctor. A sinister doctor, he says. I do have a permit. In that moment when he shows his permit, I, I like Donald a great deal. He's a tremendous actor who can play good or evil. I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No the story reason. that Donald tells here is something I experienced when I was a student at Western Kentucky University. For one of our classes, we made a trip to a mental institution, and I saw a boy that day who fit the description that Donald is giving. Blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes. The devil's eyes. The kid I saw the day I went had the devil's eyes, and he stared at me with a look of evil, and it terrified me. So I was able to utilize the experience in Donald's dialogue here. Evil. What do we do? 
He's been here once tonight. Fate is like a natural element, as is evil. It's undeniable and will not die. I think that's where a director can pull the strings of an audience by tapping into the primal fear of man, the unknown, death, mutilation, all the things we, we all know in our hearts that can happen. We're just afraid they may happen to us. How now, cried Arthur. I had a tremendously important experience happen to me when I was four years old. So said the knight. I went into the movie theater with my mother and I saw a film called It Came From Outer Space in 3D. Not anymore. I put on the 3D glasses and the opening sequence has this meteor streaking across the sky. It comes directly at the camera, comes out of the screen, and blows up in my face. I shrieked as a young kid and ran up the aisle in terror. I had never experienced anything like that. Then I stopped and I realized, you know, this is incredible. What a feeling. I want to be able to do that. How can I get that kind of reaction? It suddenly made me feel completely alive and terrified, but there was, there was nothing to be terrified of. I was in a movie theater. Never mind, I'm sure you are. From that moment on, movies thrilled me. They took me away from my, my real life, which had its problems. My parents were from northern New York. My father was a PhD in music and intellectual. He moved down to Bowling Green, Kentucky, a very small farm town in the middle of the Bible Belt, to teach at a university. Lindsay, get this dog out of the kitchen right now! So inside my house, I was listening to Bach and Beethoven and Mozart, and I would go outside and hear country music and ranting preachers. It was two different worlds. I wasn't quite sure where I fit into all this, so I believe I escaped into the movies to find myself. And all the instincts I've developed over the years basically come from my experience watching films and understanding them. You probably say you have the wrong number. <laughs> well, I just talked with Ben Tramer and he got real excited when I told him how attracted you were to him. Again, if you look at the time, there were low-budget horror movies, but none that had broken a threshold in a long time. And Halloween did because it scared its audiences. Horror has a, has a job to do. A lot of times people ghettoize horror. They, they don't respect it. They think it's like pornography. You shouldn't be doing this stuff. Oh, you didn't. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I couldn't even face it. But really, there is a function to it. If you can scream and be frightened in a theater in safety, you come out into the real world and sleep peacefully, and, and you've had a catharsis. You've had an experience that's, that's made you a little bit better. You can survive the night. You can survive the terrors of the world. There was never really conscious decision on the filmmaker's part, or the writer's part, to sort of separate the girls who kind of had sex and the girls who didn't have sex, or the girls who were a little more uh, risque with themselves and would undress in front of the camera and stuff like that. Um, later on, we came under um, some, some real question as to whether or not we consciously encouraged it. And really, the essence of a scene, for instance, where she spills butter all over herself and has to, like, get changed is that we wanted her to essentially go from one area of the house to another area of the house, lightly dressed in a little risque manner, but it wasn't just, it wasn't for the sexualness of it. It was just to make her more vulnerable. And I think there's a difference between vulnerability and sexuality. 
As I recall, Nick Castle was fairly terrified of this dog at the point. Lindsay, Lester's barking again and getting on my nerves again. And in order to suggest that the dog was being strangled and killed, the trainer grabbed the dog and held him in his arms, and we rolled the camera in slow motion to get the feel that the dog was just lost his breath. In actuality, he's just dropping the dog down. And now we're in the beginning of one of my favorite movies of all time, The Thing from Another World, directed by Howard Hawks. This was my print of the movie on, at the time, one-inch videotape. My television set, hooked up just for the film. Of course, you see the flickering. This was before we had the shutter that could take that out. What's so interesting about Howard Hawks is that Howard Hawks, in his film career, made movies like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and The Thing and Westerns and, uh, I mean, incredible movies. I mean, his range was so brilliant that uh, I think John would like to pattern himself after Howard Hawks' career. which he tells you? No. Tommy, Halloween night, it's when people play tricks on each other. It's all make-believe. I think she was just trying to scare you. She begins to be the voice of reason for us now. And she's doing to young Tommy what was done to her. What you see, you didn't really see. Often in horror movies, characters will see the little green man landing or something, and they'll run up to their spouses and say, I just saw a little green man. And the spouses say, oh, honey, no, you didn't. I've always wondered in movies why characters don't say, oh, really? Let's go find him. Let's go. Director John Carpenter. The laundry room sequence, one of the most difficult to shoot, but one of the most beautifully lit. Now we're in uh, Universal City, just above Universal Studios in the hills. The shade on the door will provide a very beautiful mask for the mask killer on the other side. Producer, Deborah Hill. John insisted on Final Cut. And what's very interesting is, you know, this is like his second, you know, major movie. But I think because of John having done Assault on Precinct 13 and Dark Star, because of John's forceful personality, because he wrote, uh, wrote co-wrote this and directed it, we got total autonomy. John got Final Cut, which... It's very interesting. As John has progressed through his career, he's expected Final Cut. And as he's made movies for more and more money with major stars and for big studios, he's, he's upset when he can't get it. And I think John probably has walked away from a lot of situations that would have been really good for him, but he insisted on that Final Cut. Lindsay! A lot of times in Hollywood, there are tremendous pressures to make a film that appeals apparently to everyone to to appeal to the mass audience through what we call market research you screen a film you take out its highs and lows and make it something like Muzak so it appeals to everyone the action scene is always timed correctly nothing lasts too long nothing lasts too short everything is clear the movie is wrapped up in the end and often Audiences are cheated because we don't give them the opportunity to experience a film with an uncertain or 
depressing ending and come out of the theater and continue to think about it because the films that live are the films that you take away something from the theater with you and you, you mull it over later whereas if we make simply make movies to please the marketing researchers we're making Muzak we hear it we forget it creative control has always been a struggle for every director that I've ever known and ever talked to from Hitchcock to Hawks to Orson Welles I've had my own personal battles with it. The one revenge you can take is to become so successful that they have to give it to you, which is, I think, the dream of every director. It's uh, an enviable position to be in, and every director doesn't have that, that opportunity. You locked yourself in. I know. We see a very nice shot here of Nancy Loomis's butt in uh, nice lacy underwear. The shot... That um, of her in the window with the panties was eliminated during the um, editing of the NBC version of Halloween. I mean, I don't think it's even as sexy as an underwear commercial, but or an underarm deodorant commercial. Part of the criticism of horror movies, especially after Halloween, was a kind of a sick voyeuristic idea that. Uh, we creep around in the dark and look at nubile young women in their underwear and then end up killing them. It's been taken to a kind of a extreme extent now as the country becomes more puritanistic and prone to censorship. Censorship for the very reasons that Washington tries to censor things I think is wrong. Censorship when it's a collaborative effort I don't mean censorship in the form that there's a board of censors that are saying cut for morality, cut for sexuality. But let's make the picture better by cutting for rhythm, cutting for character, or cutting for story. I welcome that. I enjoy that collaboration. And especially when somebody's giving you $25 million, as they did on The Fisher King, you know, I want to be able to make sure that they are happy with what we are presenting them. However, I hate the fact of censorship for arbitrary reasons, for reasons that I don't understand. And I fight it at every, at every level. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. Don't go away, because here's a scene. Actress, Jamie Lee Curtis. I don't really know if anybody had any pre-thought of why the film would become a classic film. Um, John may have had some knowledge that if you tap into this generic everyday life that from that you can create great suspense and great evil. I admire people who can think in an overall context about a film and glean from it these hypotheses of social behavior, internal behavior that's dormant, that is coming out in this film, and that it is the black of our white. I just find it fascinating. Hi, Tommy. Hi. Come on in. We're making a jack-o'-lantern. I mean, you can look at Halloween and find a metaphor for domestic repression, and what's lurking deep down inside all of us behind our conservative facades. I, again, don't think that that was a pre-thought way of looking at the movie. I don't think John and Deborah sat there necessarily saying, let's make a film about, you know, this sort of conservative utopian society of suburbia 
and what's really lurking there is pure evil. I don't think that was, in fact, their intent. I think it just happens that you can take that stance, if you want to, by looking at the film. If you watch her, I'll consider talking to Ben Tramer in the morning. I am not a great thinker, and therefore don't look at things in that sort of overall context. If I did, I probably wouldn't have done 90% of the work I've done, but I just don't think that way. I admire people who do. They usually have bad breath, I think. The old Girl Scout comes through again. And again, the pace is beginning to be very slow and deliberate. There's no rushing of things. It puts the audience on edge. I recall being heavily criticized by Pauline Kael at this point that I had no sense of timing. I may not have had her sense of timing, but this was all deliberately planned to be as slow and agonizing as possible. You know this guy is going to spring upon someone. The question is when. So you want to yell at the character, stop combing your hair, stop walking around and singing, start dealing with the fact there's a killer out there. Horror movies are the most fun to make. Everybody gets into them. Everybody wants to either be a victim or a monster. George Romero tells me that film critics will come down and visit him on the set and immediately want to be zombies. People love to play in horror films. They're the most fun to make. They're the most fun on the set. This scene is a, uh, is a play on the whole idea of fogging up the windows. I mean, it's just, in many ways, it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like the Sharashinit scene in Psycho, except that. You know, we're outside the fog windows instead of outside the shower. Our sound cut with a horn brings us back to the kids. And Forbidden Planet. Attention. Captain the crew, stand by to reverse polarity. Standard Class A security will be maintained upon landing. And until further notice, all hands will wear sidearms. That is all. We're out of sequence in the Forbidden Planet movie, but the audience didn't seem to care. This is one of the few handheld shots in the movie coming up as we follow uh, young Tommy to the window. Notice the slight difference in feel from Panaglide. Here we go, very... You can, you can feel the steps of the operator as he walks. Still very well done. Slightly different effect. All the point of views from this house were shot at the same time. We just lined them up and sent them through. As I had on paper pretty much planned out how the shooting should go. Ah! 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 Ah!
now Lori Strode enters to save the day. Even with the, with what she's seen herself and her own doubts about somebody lurking out there, she's taking care of the kids and telling them that the boogeyman does not exist. And basically she's saying you're overstimulated by what you're watching on television. Another debate that's going on today is television violence turn us into homicidal killers. Or does real life turn us into homicidal killers? You can pretty much imagine where I come down on the idea. The notion of a long take on this movie was the fact that we had very little time to do coverage. You know, the traditional form of filmmaking is you tell a story by shooting a master and then covering close-ups and over the shoulders, and then you go into the editing room, and then you figure out stylistically how you want to tell your story. When you're a filmmaker with not a lot of money, you have to figure out how to tell the story on the set so that you choose where your camera is and you choose the ability to move the camera. I mean, I think John stylistically, besides his sense of the widescreen and the lighting, I think his camera movements are always really brilliant. They lead the story. Donald is a terrific uh, glee in his eyes as he does this and gets scared here. Jesus. Are you all right? Yeah. yeah. Nothing's going on except kids playing pranks, trick-or-treating, parking, getting high. Donald is the boat keeper at the edge of the river Styx, who knows what is in hell, and again gives another very eloquent speech. And he's trying to tell the voices of authority that this evil that stalks the streets can't be reasoned away. Psychopathic, sociopathic personalities have no guilt. They're predators of humans in real life. There's something missing in their humanity. They wear the mask of sanity. We believe them to be real and true human beings. But underneath, the most chilling thing is that they don't care about other human life. More fancy talk. There's a grain of truth in every successful horror film. Something in it resonates with the audience. One of the reasons, perhaps, that Halloween was so popular was it came right around the time of the Jonestown Massacre, which was a, itself a rather horrific and terrible tragedy. And the idea of a sociopath, psychopathic personality on the loose seemed to hit the audience. Now we're with P.J. Souls and her boyfriend. Teenagers drinking beer. Couldn't get away with that today. P.J. is a terrific actress. Had, had her character completely figured out before we made the film. I first saw P.J. in Carrie. Brian De Palma's film. She did a terrific job in it. And a terrific nude scene. And she had a lot of presence. And uh, I wrote the part for her, hoping I would get her. We tried to get Dennis Quaid by P.J. Souls boyfriend because they were living together at the time but we couldn't work out the dates 
PJ Souls, besides doing our picture, um, did a picture that our, our kids directed called uh, Rock and Roll High School. She did a lot of teenage pictures. And, you know, Damie Lee Curtis, interesting to note, went on to sort of be, you know, the queen of screams. I mean, she did Terror Train and, you know, lots and lots of, of horror pictures. Where they went. This, this shot where you see um, uh, PJ and, and her boyfriend is a very conscious recreation of the original shot. It was a very difficult shot to do because if you notice it, it requires a dolly shot where she comes in and we pull back and then we, they kiss and then they lay down on the couch and we pull back. It was all done in one cut. as we pull back to discover. Nick Castle, the ever-present voyeur watching the scene. Ah! One of the appeals of Halloween was the dealing with the rituals of Halloween, pumpkins and trick-or-treating. And Although we only did it superficially, it, it gave a sense of time and place to the American public. European audiences don't have Halloween. And we're really kind of puzzled at all the goings-on. Halloween brought up a lot of um, imitators. Friday the 13th was a fairly obvious example of a, something that imitated it precisely. But they began to become more and more grotesque and violent. And they lost sight of character. They lost sight of tempo and timing. And became something called splatter movies. I suppose it's blood splattering on the wall. I don't know what to say about him except that I'm very flattered by the fact that, that I was imitated so much. Dollhouse. Hi, Lori. What's up? Uh, just sitting down for the first time tonight. I believe I was influenced by my own movie uh, that I had just made for television. Finished it two weeks before we started Halloween. Someone's watching me. Had a lot of phone conversations. People who are isolated are talking to each other over the telephone heightens the sense of fear. Okay. In a moment, you're going to see uh, PJ trip over the dolly track with her high heel shoes. Lindsay is gone for the night. Hey, now that's wonderful. <laughs> and here's where PJ trips over the dolly track right there. See, I don't consider this a splatter movie. I think it's almost without any splatterage. I mean, splatterage is... Splatterage is natural-born killers. You know what I mean? That's a splatter movie. That's just, you know, brain matter being shot out of special effects guns. I mean, you know, Blue Steel is a splatter movie in comparison to, to this, and Blue Steel is a, a sort of psychological thriller. There is virtually no blood in this movie. It's so subtle and so beautifully done that it... I think the imitators of this film just felt that the way to imitate it and the way to get people in is to make it gorier and gorier and uh, redder and redder, but I don't think that that was, in fact, the intent of this film at all. Just take it off the hook. I love the idea that people would have sex in somebody else's parents' bed. Like you wouldn't know or I wouldn't know if somebody had been up in our room stooping, you know? Such a funny idea. My first love-making scene. 
little shadow on the wall as the lovers consummate their relationship. I'm always uncomfortable doing these. I think it's probably because I get shy. I don't know how much to ask the actors to do. Luckily, they were under the covers at the time, or I really don't think I would have been able to watch the scene. Sex on the screen is is uncomfortable. I think you can find in the film a moral tale if you choose to. I don't believe it was written as a moral tale. I have never heard John or Deborah say that they were creating a story where the promiscuous girls are punished for their promiscuity and the abstinent girl is rewarded for her abstinence. I don't think that that was designed that way. It was really the characters have to be the ones who are not paying attention to what's going on. They're more interested in what's going on in their own sexual life that they don't see it coming. Bad choice of words. But I don't think it was a predetermined sort of moral tale. I don't know when teen splatter films came about. We were raised in the 50s. We were raised on all these wonderful pictures that produced fear and thrills and fun and all of that kind of stuff. And especially as we got older and we were in the drive-in and we were teenagers and you could get snuggle up to the boy next to you if you were scared, you know. I mean, they were like great date movies. And I think somewhere along the line, either the audiences got sophisticated or the studios got scared and they needed to have more and more and more graphic violence. And I think that's where the teen splatter came from. It came later. It came after Halloween and had, I don't think, a reflection on the films that John Carpenter and I were making, but on what other filmmakers were doing. I just think it's interesting that people said it was so bloody and gory, and in fact the film has very, very little gore, what you would consider gore. It's really all supposed, imagined, and very, very little actual Blood. I mean, I've done films since with buckets of it on the set where you put your hand in it. I mean, oh, my God. The sound effects of the knife going into this guy was made by a knife going into a watermelon. There's a great moment here. It's really one of the scariest things in the film. And the only shot of it is wide. Toes curling. Very good. Wide shot. Now, look at the way he tips his head. Like a dog. So cool. So unbelievably cool. Nick's idea, indicating again, this is a completely deranged individual. Now a sequence that Deborah Hill came up with. The bed sheet and the guy's glasses. Well, did you get my beer? A brilliant uh, idea. I must say. <laughs> cute, Bob. Real cute. We have the conjunction of humor and anticipation of horror coming here because we know it's the shape. Her boyfriend's dead. She's trying to tantalize him. See anything you like? The audience is saying, stop doing that and why don't you start reacting to the fact he's not doing anything. What's the matter? Can I get your ghost, Bob? Again, the sequence takes its time, doesn't rush. All right, all right, come on, where's my beer? Slow and leisurely. Well, can't you answer me? 
PJ is a terrific actress, has a tremendous instincts. I want to know where Paul and Annie are. This is going nowhere. Now we hear the piano start up, a time clock beat that we can tap our feet to, because we're leading you right up to the moment that she is dispatched. Uh, uh, Hello? Uh, uh, the interesting thing about the shot where PJ Souls gets, you know, sort of murdered by the telephone cord wrapped around her is a little bit of dialing for murder. But what's so interesting is this telephone, these phone calls that go back and forth between these girls, you know, sometimes it's praying, sometimes it's not. It's where the very thing that teenage girls know and love best, which is the telephone, because it becomes an instrument of death. So it's sort of the irony of that. I'll kill you if this is a joke. This is the first time we see the Captain Kirk mask close up, although nobody really knows it's a Captain Kirk mask. I love the idea that he's gotten this close to her. He's actually on the phone. I think the reason that I made the quote that I felt more exploited during... Uh, mainstream films than I did during what would be quote exploitation films is that in the exploitation films I really played the characters that weren't exploited I played the characters that were smart and strong and capable and I've had people bring up the fact that I've been in movies that exploited women or so-called exploited women and in the quote mainstream films films that would be more palatable sort of studio pictures uh, within the industry that in fact it's then that I was relegated to taking off my clothes and playing prostitutes I just found it ir ironic that that I managed to do six exploitation films without really ever being exploited I mean the, the, the job I got to get me out of being in horror films was to play Dorothy Stratton Death of a Centerfold for television so it's such an irony that the way that I became legitimate within the industry on some level was to play a woman who took off her clothes. I think that as filmmakers now in the 90s, with so much of life being reflected in art, where art used to imitate life, I think it's the other way around. Life is imitating art. And so therefore, we have to sort of censor ourselves with, by showing less graphic violence by showing more human drama, and also, to by showing less graphic sex. I think that we have a responsibility to the changing times. With violence everywhere, with AIDS prevalent everywhere, um, we just have to take the responsibility as filmmakers and limit it in our films and try to find stories that are driven by characters who find some sense of good in people and some sense of fairness in life and should present those characters as role models. Coming up in a second is going to be one of the longer Panaglide shots that I've done. This sequence is a typical Hitchcock look-see. We begin with Jamie, kind of a medium tracking shot on a Panaglide. And we cut to her point of view. And we've extended the sequence as long as possible to build up the maximum dread in the audience. 
Because again, anybody who's watching this knows it's a horror film. They know something's going to happen. They know that Jamie is going to be menaced by this killer. The question of when. All horror is basically a question of when is it going to happen. I've come to the theater and I've paid my money, and I want to see it. How long are you going to keep me from seeing it? It makes me anxious when you do. Well, this is what we call the longest walk in Hollywood. Um, we used to kid about this. I mean, John just milked it and milked it and milked it. And I think that what makes this work is the fact that the audience is like screaming, "Don't go over there! Don't go over there!" But the music here is just so repetitious, and it's what draws you over. Sort of from about the middle of the shot. I mean, the audiences start and don't stop till the very end of the movie, jumping in and out of their seats. You've established enough question in her mind for her to make the big step. And John, when he hired me, talked about vulnerability on screen, and I had no idea what he was talking about. And his reference was, if you establish somebody who the audience cares about long enough, for enough time, once you really enter the den of the unreal, the people will actually care enough about you to be vocal to the screen, to to actually talk back and. At the moment when she leaves the house to go find out what's going on across the street, from that moment in the movie, people actually stood up in the theater, started screaming, "Don't go over there!" Because they cared about her, and I really saw that as an as evidence of that when John showed the movie to an audience in Hollywood. They just screamed. Annie. Slowly again, like pawns on a chessboard, you're moving through. Environments to the final confrontation through the back kitchen. Traditional squeaking door and sound effects lead you to believe perhaps that he's in there. Again, misdirection is part of horror, directing the audience to one place and delivering in another. John Carpenter. Traditionally, in movies, you don't shoot your leading actress from a low angle with a 35 millimeter lens. But with Jamie Lee Curtis, because she's so beautiful, it was、uh, acceptable. Jamie Lee Curtis. I loathe horror movies. I won't see one. I watched Natural Born Killers the other day with my eyes shut, my hands over my ears for you know 50 percent of the movie. I can't see anything scary. I don't like to be surprised. I'm fine if I know what's coming. I actually, I saw a Silence of the Lambs by myself simply because the makeup man on that movie told me, blow by blow, what to expect when I saw the movie. In so much so that I had it written down on a piece of paper that said, "When Jody goes in garage, shut eyes until you hear everybody in the audience scream. Then it's okay." So I sat there with my little piece of paper, kind of smiling. I was very proud of myself. We numbered the terror level for the character, knowing that we would shoot the movie completely out of context and out of sequence, so that through my script there are little numbers. And you know, I learned a little bit about the craft of that, and a little bit of the craft of of、uh, plotting out where you're going. But the real lesson that John taught me was that to show vulnerability to Allow somebody into you, so to speak, is really the key of movie acting. And he gave me that gift by telling me, 
telling me about it. I, I think I associated vulnerability with weakness and didn't want Laurie to be a weak character. And I think his feeling was very much that if you allow them in, that they'll care for you. And that if they care for you, that makes the movie work. Now this, coming up, the sequence where I open the door and look in the room and walk in the room, this is a scene where John actually said to me, you know, I don't really know how to get you in and around the room. I know I need you to get from here to there to there so that all of the scares can work. How do you do it? And we just talked about how someone would physically be moved back by the sight of something like that. Deborah Hill. Well, this scene here that we're watching sort of ties up the missing gravestone. I mean, she walks in and she finds all of her friends dead. She has no idea what's been going on. She has no source of where this evil is coming from. I mean, this is a girl who spent the entire day thinking that she saw something, and suddenly... Boy, do they go wild in a movie theater. And that guy was actually hanging by his knees, arched backwards, and just let go at that moment. The place has become a ghastly house of horrors as Jamie rushes out of the room and backs yet into another corner, preparing us for a very inventive and unique lighting situation by Dean Cundy. <laughs> Nick Castle is in there on a rheostat, and he's slowly faded up until we can just barely see his face. So this seems so beautifully done. Watch this. There he is. Just so cool. And over she goes. Point of view shot. That thing means we drop the camera on a bungee strip. Now it starts. From that note of the music, now it starts. The whole movie starts. Now we're going to set our time clock again for the big chase across the street. A piano as heartbeat. The breathing, unkillable shape following her. Back to the same environment we saw her enter the house, except now she's putting up obstacles. And our tension level should be pretty high by now, because of what we expect to happen. Sophisticated audience members can perhaps see the pane of phony glass that we have set up for her to break through, because it catches light slightly differently. remember this scene. This was like at four in the morning out in Hollywood and they had closed off a lot of the street for this big wide shot. Help! Oh God, help me, please! It was just always very strange to be screaming, running up and down a street. Hello, help me! Man, please help me! Please! Can't you hear me? Oh, poor little Ting. What Jamie Lee Curtis does here is, is similar to what, you know, John Wayne did in The Searchers, is he went and found the kids. In some sense, you know, John is borrowing that and, and making her think intelligently. I mean, she is a responsible babysitter. I mean, that was the whole idea of building that side of her character. This is a girl who takes the responsibility very seriously. She's got these young charges. She's, she's got to protect them. 
it's the whole idea of her nurturing sense. And where the other girls just want sort of fun, she she responds differently. And she could have just sort of, you know, ran down the street and gotten help. What she does is she goes and protects the kids. And she doesn't stop protecting them. I certainly felt I was representing the best of American women. Smart, strong, capable, tenacious, brave, all of which are adjectives that I would like to describe women as being. Perhaps all the sequences in Halloween are familiar to the audience. They've seen them before in horror movies. They're simply being restated, kind of classic horror setups, reworked slightly. We never really looked at this movie as like a classic horror picture in terms of what are the rules. We just really sort of looked at it. Um, do we care about her? Will the audience respond to her? Will the audience be engaged by her journey? Grab that knitting needle, baby. Now you can see the kind of bad makeup on my hand and the bad makeup on my arm. Nah. All right. So cool. So great how he just drops out of frame. This is a haunted house movie. I mean, there's no question about it. In many ways, it could be like, you know, the Three Stooges in a haunted house. It's cliched in many ways. There's really nothing original except that we took all the cliches about Halloween and threw them into a movie. And the simplicity of it is what's original about it. It didn't need to be complex. Here, of course, is one of the harder things I've had to do in the movies. I actually have to throw the knife away. If I've learned anything, it was that in a wide shot, this is going to look stupid. If he had shot it close, you would have seen that she's actually sort of, there's revulsion in holding a knife. To me, it looks like such a sort of, sort of tossed away gesture that people did groan when I did it, going, oh, sure. If it was closer, you would have seen that she was just so grossed out that she was holding a knife. Where were you? I went to the Myers house. I found the car. He's here. Where? He's three blocks down. You go around the back of the houses. I'll watch the front. Go on. When I showed the film to an executive before it was finished, I screened the movie without the music. The executive said, this movie is not scary at all doesn't work for me and later after it had come out she said I was wrong I hadn't seen it with the music music is a great deal of the power of the film it's extremely minimalistic almost sounds and and beats and yet it carries you through Tommy Lindsay there's a term in music when you're singing a song and you come to the end and you revamp the melodies and themes that you've been using into something called the 11 o'clock shuffle was where you restate your theme and intonalities one more time with a new beat and all of a sudden our 11 o'clock shuffle begins you can't kill the boogeyman <laughs> Halloween builds upon a, an idea that I came up with when I saw Michael Crichton's Westworld a robot gunfighter of Yul Brynner programmed to chase our hero who never quite died even when he was burned the audience got a scream out of this burned robot coming back to life. So I thought I would take it a step further and incorporate it with the idea that evil never dies. This is just great John Carpenter 
you know, put a, a young girl alone in a closet with some great lighting and, and uh, know that it's going to be scary. I mean, it's so basic and simple. Why are there no clothes in the closet? I want to know. I said earlier that the way the picture is shot is it becomes claustrophobic. And we go from really sort of wide open spaces to claustrophobic camera angles. And part of adding to those claustrophobic camera angles is, is imprisoning, you know, Lois Strode and, and making her, you know, where it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller until she's finally in a closet. Each moment is stretched out as long as possible because the audience wants everything to be speeded up and resolved. Audiences hate uncertainty. They want a conclusion. They want the evil to be stopped. But of course, he can never be stopped. For the first time in the film, the shape is played by Tommy Lee Wallace. He does an extraordinary job standing in here as she grabs a coat hanger and defends herself with the weapon she has at her disposal. Again, we have an off-screen moment of violence, almost like an old-fashioned movie. Now, there is a second moment where I throw the knife away that I can't explain around. It's just, again, sort of a bonehead move on my part, I might say. That was a bonehead move. Well, Jamie, when she read the script, I mean, she really loved the script and she loved the character being so naive. You know, it's very interesting in terms of makeup and hair and wardrobe, and we really tried to enhance that and make her a little more homely, you know, and homely than, like, glamorous. And sometimes actors' instincts are to go glamorous, and she didn't, which is really interesting for a young actress because their instincts are to be, you know, made up. Now, do you understand me? Go do as I say. Now, see, why she doesn't go with them? I'll never know. But the way that he reveals that the shape is still alive is so cool that it's worth it. Boom. And watch him turn his head. Boom. Oh, man. That is so scary. To see him sit up like that, dead straight, and turn his head like that. So fabulous. Ah, oh, so great. Now the little so very cool. The interesting thing about Nick Castle playing the shape is that he has a sense of rock and roll style, you know, I mean, having been his father being a choreographer and everything like that. And if you look at Halloween 2, it's a stuntman playing the shape, a guy by the name of Dick Warlock. And even though Dick Warlock, you know, watched this movie over and over and over again and looked at those sequences. He could never quite get the rhythm. For the first moment in this movie, you're going to see the face of Michael Myers. And it appears to us, after this rather incredible struggle, that somehow he cannot survive without his mask. 
shooting the sequence coming up, Donald Pleasance asked me, how do you want me to react when I look off the balcony? There are two ways. I can react, oh my God, he's gone. Or I can react, I knew he would be gone. It was the first time an actor had ever given me a choice, and I was stunned by it, so I asked Donald to please play it both ways and let me decide later. See if you can figure out which choice I made as he looks down from the porch. Let's have a good scary time and scream till you go home. You know, that was what I did my job as. The thing that the movie gave me, which I very much personally needed, was success at that time. I'm not particularly patient. And I don't know if, had I not been successful early on, if I would have been struggling for five or six years, I don't know if I would have held out for that long. I don't know if I wouldn't have just bailed and gone on to something else. And so for me to have a film, my first film, come out and be such a sort of big-time success in a small way was very satisfying and very helpful, just emotionally and personally didn't get me another job necessarily right away but it it gave me something you know it was it had its mark it made its mark and therefore it gave me a foothold that I'd never had had before the movie back then was the largest grossing independent film in history it cost $300,000 to make and it grossed $55 million dollars John Carpenter and I didn't see a lot of that money. I mean, we saw very, very little of it because we were inexperienced and naive and we didn't really have a solid contract. Because of business considerations, we were forced, literally forced into making a sequel. The sequel was going to be made with us or without us. And part of the reason for making the sequel was to get the money that was owed to both Deborah and I from the first film. Being nice capitalists, we decided to go ahead and do that. So from a material wealth point of view, it didn't change me. But from an accessibility point of view, in that the doors open a lot, yes. The doors instantly opened because we were proven box office successes. I sat down to write the sequel and I realized there's no story here. We've done the story. All we're doing is Xeroxing. It's a little hard when people expect you to repeat the same thing over and over again. Audiences and critics don't seem to realize that when you want to do something different, you never want to repeat yourself if you could possibly help it. I don't want to Xerox Halloween. Halloween was unique for what it was. It was a movie made by kids, put together with a lot of love and a lot of panache, at a breakneck pace, and you see it on the screen, and it works, and we should all leave it alone. But now there's been four or five of them, I believe, and there's going to be six. That's kind of sad. I really enjoy the work I've been doing. I enjoy everything that's come from Halloween. If there's any point to be made in the film, is that you can survive the night. But I think everyone in the audience would say that being aware of the possibility of evil is an important thing in life. All children need to be told that the world can be bad and dark and dangerous, but with a little luck and awareness you can survive. <laughs> 